Welcome to another episode of the Unlikely Hikers podcast. Unlikely Hikers is a diverse, anti-racist, body-liberating outdoor community on Instagram at Unlikely Hikers. It's also a nationwide hiking group. I'm your host, Jenny Brusso. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm a white, queer, fat, femme, writer, and hiker. I'm recording this episode in Portland, Oregon, specifically on the traditional lands of the Cowlitz, Chinook, and Kalapuya, though the greater Portland area is also on the land of the Wasco, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tualatin, and Malala. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Siren Nagakiri, founder of Disabled Hikers, an outdoor community by disabled hikers for disabled hikers. I'm a huge fan. You'll also hear from other members of the Unlikely Hikers community. Stay tuned. So this episode is coming a little late. I'm going to admit I really struggled to get it done. In the same way I'm struggling to get anything done. My mental health is in the bad place. And I know I talk about this in the intro of nearly every episode. And I'm tired of it. I've got that sick of myself feeling that everyone with depression knows very well. But also, this is what's freaking real for me. And I'm just not going to smile and pretend I'm okay when I'm not. I mean, I'm okay in the sense that I'm safe that I have everything I need. I'm not in danger to myself, but I can barely leave the house most days, even to get out into nature. We're approaching August and I still haven't been in water. I haven't hiked in weeks or been out of reception and I really, really need to get out of reception. (laughs) So as of setting this episode free to all of you wonderful listeners, I'll be figuring out how to take a break and also maybe hopefully seek professional help, which is nothing new for me, but somehow right now feels more daunting than ever. My general practitioner who never said anything negative about my weight has left, and I know I'm going to be made to consult with someone before I can see a psychiatrist and what should be a normal visit will likely devolve into medical anti-fat bias at a time when I'm really fragile and having to advocate for myself along with talking to someone about my life's traumas and trying new meds. I just feel like I can't bear it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many times I've been through this. So hopefully by the next time you hear from me, I'll have worn a bathing suit at least once and squeezed some of the summer out of summer. I hope to have the next episode out by August 26th. And if any of this resonates for you, I hope you'll find a way to give yourself permission to take care of yourself too.
before we get to the interview, I have to address what's been happening in Portland with the feds and local police assaulting and abducting protesters. This is real. I've seen the tanks and unmarked SUVs. I've seen the cell phone footage of cops shooting tear gas and projectiles at close range, unprovoked, right in people's faces. You can't even make up excuses for why any of this should be justified. Around midnight, they just go ham on otherwise peaceful protests. Many people have asked me and, and my partner, Bree, if we're okay, and we are. We've been to protests, but are no longer going for many reasons, the biggest being COVID-19. I'm really, really grateful for those who physically show up, especially those who are keeping this about Black Lives Matter and not about some of the messy distractions like the wall of moms. That said, how are you still showing up? I'm especially aiming this at our white listeners. Can you commit to doing one thing every day for racial injustice? Head to our show notes at jennybrusso.com for ideas. Make a plan if you haven't already, and we're going to discuss this on the next episode. I know my social media feeds have started to go back to quote-unquote normal. I also know that social media is not always a great indicator of what a person's up to and what they're doing. And, you know, I know that mine isn't a good indicator of what I'm doing every day and how I'm moving through the world. And I just want to keep that momentum going, right? And now, on with the show. A note, Siren's adorable dog, Benji, barked through much of our interview because life happens. I did my very best with the sound. I've always been in love with nature. Um, for me as a kid, that didn't look like engaging in outdoor recreation or going to camp or any of those kind of more typical childhood experiences. Um, because I was disabled and chronically ill, I spent most of my time just kind of hanging out in my yard and watching the birds and you know looking at the moon and um, just having these really quote unquote small but really intimate experiences with nature and it kind of added a, a depth and a dimension to my childhood that um, really inspired me. That's Siren Nagakiri, pronouns they, them, and theirs, founder of Disabled Hikers. The idea for Disabled Hikers came in an unlikely moment. They were attempting a new segment of a trail system they were familiar with and had done tons of research beforehand to find out about terrain and trail conditions. But upon setting foot on trail, Siren encountered a number of obstacles not mentioned in any of the guides they'd read. Steep stairs, a narrow, scree-covered slope, and steep drop-offs. By the time they reached their destination, they were exhausted and in pain, but it was in that moment that inspiration struck. Siren asked themselves, why don't I do something about this? In March of 2018, Disabled Hikers was born. The multiple identities that I inhabit include white, queer, disabled, poor, I come from a 
poor disabled working class family. So I have multiple invisible disabilities and I grew up disabled. I've been disabled or chronically ill my entire life. So they include uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, fibromyalgia, possibly chronic fatigue syndrome. And then I have various mental illnesses, including you know, depression, anxiety, CPTSD. Uh, I also have asthma. I don't know, there's a whole laundry list. <laughs> you know, I didn't really start doing outdoor recreation until probably my mid twenties. And that was in large part because I just never felt like there was a place for me. Like no one knew how to address my needs. No one knew how to create space for me. Um, so when I really started trying outdoor recreation, I was pretty quickly felt really frustrated and really excluded. You know, as someone with an invisible disability, it's pretty, I have often felt very invisible in the world in general and um, very excluded and very ignored and just felt like I never had a place to belong. Like I didn't really belong in non-disabled spaces. I didn't always feel like I belonged in disabled spaces. So for me, outdoors gave me a place to feel like I always belonged. Um, it gave me kind of a home to come back to. Um, you know, my background has been pretty uh, unstable, I guess you could say. And, you know, I've moved around a lot. So having that connection with the outdoors kind of gave me a place that I felt like I could always come home to. Disability is diverse. It can be visible and invisible, and even then, you don't know someone's needs or abilities just by looking at their body. It felt important to get some other perspectives on some of the questions I asked Siren, so I turned to the Unlikely Hikers community to weigh in. The voices you'll hear weaved throughout the interview are from Evita Rush, Basu Sojitra, Matthew Tilford, Alyssa, Eugene Brookman, Olivia Bernard, Callie Welch, and Regina. Here are some of their favorite outdoor activities. So I'm a professional skier by trade as well as by love. And I do alpine backcountry ski mountaineering. And I also trail run. I go pack rafting on the river um, and a lot of road and gravel biking and bikepacking. My favorite outdoor activity to do is just sit and enjoy the birds. I love to hike or walk the trails of Montana specifically along the Rocky Mountain front. I'm a wheelchair user with a spinal cord injury who hikes, camps, bikes, both road and mountain. We love hiking and backpacking and backcountry time and wild spaces. During COVID, biking became uh, an easier, accessible thing to do. We love to forage for food and in the winter, skiing and snowshoeing. Um, are, are excellent as well. I love to go canoeing and hiking and the backpacking versions of both of those, so canoe packing and backpacking. I like to go day hiking, car camping, and I do some indoor climbing. I'm a scientist and I've done field work in the past, and that's actually been some of the more physically strenuous activities that I've done outdoors. I will often just describe myself as disabled um, because I am. I say, you know, when I'm talking about the difference between invisible disabilities and visible disabilities, there people with invisible disabilities often feel like 
um, you know, they aren't seen within spaces. So, and we encounter a lot of disbelief around being disabled. So because someone, you know, when they look at us or interact with us, they can't immediately see that we are disabled. Um, they, you know, will often, you know, not believe us and think that, you know, the things that, you know, I need to be able to access a space aren't really important or I'm lying or I just want special treatment. Um, so it takes a lot of extra emotional labor to be able to explain those things. I started exploring outdoor recreation in my mid-20s, like I said, and uh, really immediately encountered a lot of, you know, a lot of barriers, a lot of lack of information, a lot of ableism in the outdoor community. Who is Disabled Hikers for? Disabled Hikers is really um, it's for the disability community by the disability community and I feel like that's really something that is special and unique about disabled hikers um, because we are very disability led and disability centered um, but of course part of the work is advocating for accessibility and inclusion in the outdoors and that means also reaching out to the non-disabled outdoor community and doing that advocacy work so there's kind of two you know, two aspects to disabled hikers that, you know, is both geared towards the disability community and the non-disabled community. What do you think of when you hear the words diversity in the outdoors or when people talk about diversifying the outdoors? As we know, people with disabilities are often, if not most of the time, left out of that conversation. Mm -hmm. What is that like? For the work that you do, how does it feel? Yeah, it feel, it's really frustrating for disabled people to be largely left out of the diversity in the outdoors movement. Um, I do feel like that's starting to shift and I'm very glad about that, but it definitely feels like a very uphill challenge. So, you know, I feel like kind of within the DEI movement, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's really challenging. I think there are so many able-bodied people that assume that if you are disabled or in any way unable to climb up a trail, that you're somehow less worthy of experiencing the nature of it, which is a ridiculous concept. And also, I think a lot of people don't tend to think about someone in a different situation from them. So maybe they just never thought about, oh, a disabled person might also want to enjoy this trail and how would they be able to do so? Maybe it just doesn't cross their mind. And often I, I feel like diversifying the outdoors is an afterthought of many people. It is disappointing to um, be left out of conversations um, it's not shocking. It's been happening forever since the dawn of having disabilities, which is forever. Um, it's a human biology. Um, because of that, I just think, I mean, there's so much we can learn from folks with disabilities, not including myself. I have a very privileged disability. I mostly have been, I, my eyes have been open based around interacting with other people with disabilities and seeing the broad narrative that the term disability is. It's not myopic. It's not stereotypical. There's a lot of different privileges and oppressions that come with just that word in itself. Um, so 
it's uh, it's very eye-opening to see the needs and access that this broad term and broad community have. Um, and it's definitely necessary when it comes to having our voices at the table. And, you know, vocalizing this over and over again, once our most marginalized, either dis disabled, sick, ill, old, elder, um, are uplifted, our whole community is going to be uplifted. Being left out of the conversation hurts a lot. A lot of people tend to look at disabled people as unwanted or trash, or think, or they just don't think of us when they're doing things. Whether it's building a new park or even forming groups to go on a hike, it makes me feel like I'm truly unwanted and wish I wasn't always in the way. Being left out of the conversation is nothing new to people with disabilities. We've fought for our rights just like every other minority group has. Not many people know this, but people with disabilities have only had equal access rights for about 30 years. Yes, you heard that right. Not being part of the conversation is heartbreaking. I love movements we're seeing, like the Black Lives Matter movement in outdoors community, but people with disabilities have far less access to the outdoors than every minority group. We're forgotten. I used to work for an outdoor goods store. We had a diversity and inclusion training and there was no mention of disability at all. This just shows how little the outdoor industry is thinking about disability. We'd have customers come in with bad knees or who found certain clothes uncomfortable on their skin. And my coworkers would label these customers as being difficult and would give them subpar service. Disabled people are meant to enjoy the outdoors and they deserve the tools that'll allow them to do so comfortably. In the end, I had to quit that job because of the ableism I experienced. I had no future there, and often it feels like disabled people have no future outside. How are your meetups different than other hiking groups? When I schedule a group hike, I of course, you know, start by trying to select a trail that is going to be accessible to the most amount of people, um, acknowledging that accessibility varies widely and it's really difficult to find trails in particular that are going to meet everyone's needs because they just don't exist. Um, so, but I really try to start there. And then um, when someone registers for the hike, I connect with them individually and check on their access needs and, you know, see, you know, what they need for the space to be accessible, to feel safe any, or anything like that so that we can have that conversation one-on-one -on -one so they're not required to like, share that with the whole group when we get there and also that helps me in planning ahead of time and then when we at the start of the hike you know of course we have a, a whole check-in process and i invite everyone then to also share any access needs that they may want to share with the group um, and you know to have that conversation about what each of us need in that space and how we can accommodate each other's needs and then as we go on the hike you know, I'm consistently checking in with the group and seeing if anyone needs to take a break or turn back or, you know, what their needs are in that moment. And I encourage them to speak up also at any time if they need to take a break, then just say, hey, I need to rest for a moment. And the whole group stops and takes a break. But then I also acknowledge that, like, for some people, you know, taking a lot of breaks or walking really slowly is difficult for them because of their own needs. So, you know, we try to balance all that within the group so that everyone feels like their needs are being met and they're not being left behind. 
I used to try and hike with my friends or family, but anymore I try to avoid group hikes as much as possible because I could never keep up with the pace that was set, no matter who was setting the pace. And inevitably, I found myself feeling less than, like I couldn't measure up, and like I was ruining other people's experiences. Additionally, I usually push myself too hard in an attempt to keep up, and in the end, everybody always felt frustrated, and I usually felt alone. I've participated in disability outdoor programs in the past. There's definitely a need for them, especially if you're new to the community. It's a great way to learn about a new activity and find new friends. These days, I'm enjoying being alone in the middle of the woods. I haven't joined a hiking group in years since becoming more disabled because I'm honestly terrified of being left behind and I feel like that would be so mortifying and I haven't found a disability-friendly group to go hiking with. I'm pretty careful about the friends that I go hiking with. I'm very selective with that too. I usually look for how diverse the group is, whether that be disabled or BIPOC or queer, trans, two-spirit. And based off of that, it's more of just like understanding where people are at in a more of like a DEI lens, like what capacity people are able to incorporate into conversation, um, some of those ideas. As for like access, I, I'm for me, like physical access isn't the biggest of issues. It's more of that emotional intelligence that comes with a lot of group dynamics. And that's a, that's a privilege that I have, I can say, that I have. I have never joined any group events. There are just very few people that I feel comfortable going hiking with. My rule of thumb is that I only go hiking with people who are willing to turn back, even if we're really close to a summit. No, I am not a fan of joining groups or doing group, ex group events. I've never really had a good experience doing things in groups, so I tend to shy away from them. We're very selective when it comes to groups that we will participate in. Um, sometimes one of us will agree, but because of the dissociation, someone else will disagree and um, we'll change our minds, which then makes it tricky to make plans with someone and then feel like you're constantly backing out. But if not everyone agrees, then that's what has to happen. It's trickier in groups with new people, especially where they don't know us and our story and our parts. Um, and it can fill us with anxiety and fear of rejection. And then we become completely unstable. Often we prefer to go with our dog and our spot device um, and one friend. One-on-one -on -one is way better for us. The things I'm looking for are keywords or in terms of everyone welcome, everyone is welcome, all ability levels are welcome. That tells me that um, someone like me can be included in these events. How has COVID-19 impacted your events and, and your work in general? Um, yeah, COVID-19 has had a pretty huge impact. I've canceled all events for the foreseeable future. You know, which is really disappointing because I'm working on the guidebook and will be traveling for that. And I was really looking forward to 
being able to offer more hikes in different areas and do different events and that's not going to be a possibility now so that's disappointing but you know it's more important to keep everyone safe i have thought about what doing an event might look like um and if i were to do it one it would be very small um you know no more than probably five people and of course it would you know be required that everyone have you know some kind of face covering that is you know accessible for them to use you know practice the uh, physical distancing have you know masks and hand sanitizer and all that available um, to use for the group i've been kind of juggling some of that as well and there's this part of me that's like well with your group i feel like most people who show up are already going to have a really good understanding of the protocols that need to be in place to do this well and in a way that makes everybody feel really safe. And I think with Unlikely Hikers, most of the people who show up also understand those kinds of things. But the variable of, of someone showing up and not getting it, not respecting it, um, not like intentionally or willfully, you know, not respecting it is something that like, I feel like I just like cannot bear right now. I would hate to Dis disrupt everyone else's time, you know, for for folks who who might not get it and might not understand why they need to like, you know, have the right amount of distance. And, you know, it's it sounds so hard to enforce all of that right now. You're already minding so much, guiding people, leading people who have different needs. You know, Unlikely Hikers, the way you describe your group hikes, we have a, a, a pretty similar process where there is a lot of checking in when, when somebody needs a break, everybody gets a break. And also watching people too, because sometimes people don't advocate for themselves very well. And you kind of have to, unfortunately, step in sometimes and really like have a little real talk moment with somebody. And, and that can be hard too. Yeah, definitely. I was laid off because of COVID, just like, I don't even know how many, what percentage of the US, 50, 60, it was like massive. But at first I was mostly staying in my house and not really going even to the trailhead um, or literally anywhere other than just like in and around my house or biking, um, road biking alone. So that was kind of the start, but now I've started to go to trailheads, which are fairly crowded here in Montana because people aren't taking it as seriously anymore. And I'm trying to be as aware as possible when it comes to large groups of people uh, biking and not carpool. But yeah, it, doesn't, it hasn't really affected too much. I've still been able to get out and do the fun activities that I usually do in the summer with my close um, social circles. Well, I'm vulnerable to the coronavirus. Um, so my outdoor adventures have ceased to exist. I do have a big backyard, so I go out there, I exercise, I watch birds. Um, but I'm not going out on any of the local trails. From what I've heard, they're overcrowded and people aren't wearing masks, so it's just not worth the risk. It actually has made, it has impacted my outdoor adventure in a good way because I have all the time in the world to get outdoors. Whereas before I was working a whole lot, so I didn't really have much time to do the things that I wanted to do. I've been um, going camping and kayaking and 
hiking more. So it's been great. Social distance, of course. You know, I still wear my mask. COVID-19 restrictions have actually had a huge impact on me. My wheelchair has been broken for months. And mainly because of COVID-19, I'm unable to get it fixed. COVID-19 has really limited my ability to experience nature because I live in New York City and I don't have a car and I'm being really cautious so I can't really use public transportation to get outdoors. Luckily, I do have some really short, small trails by my house in a park um, and I've been going to those, but as far as getting out there somewhere where I can't hear the city, um, I've basically been unable to do that for the entirety of the pandemic. Siren, can you tell us about your book? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about the Disabled Hikers Guide. A part of me is still kind of just I don't know, in disbelief that it's happening. <laughs> um, it just kind of manifested so quickly that I'm still kind of taken aback by it. So the book is, uh, it's the Disabled Hiker's Guide to Western Washington and Western Oregon, Outdoor Adventures Accessible by Car, Wheelchair, and Foot. And it's going to be um, include about 60 different outdoor trails, scenic drives, uh, wheelchair accessible paths. It's really going to be designed you know specifically for of course disabled uh, hikers and disabled outdoors people and as far as i can tell it's going to be the first guide actually written by another disabled person um, that's being published by a major publisher um falcon guides is publishing the book of course the whole planning process um, there's so much planning that goes into writing a guidebook and that's like doubly complicated right now because of COVID-19. So my plan is to basically do all the field research uh, for the next year. And then I'll be submitting the book for publication um, in June of 2021. And then it will be published shortly after that. What will the trail write-ups be like? Yeah, so the trail write-ups in the book are... Um, going to be kind of broken up into three different types. So there's going to be um, about 20% scenic drives um, or, you know, scenic adventures that place, places that people can basically drive to and still have a really amazing experience of the outdoors. So maybe it will be a scenic drive along to an amazing viewpoint or something like that. It will also include information on accessible parking spots and things like that. and information on roadways that people who drive accessible vans need. And then there will be approximately 20% on ADA wheelchair accessible trails. So this is, these are trails that actually meet the full ADA or ABA guidelines for trails, not just any random trail that says it's wheelchair accessible because they usually are not. The remainder of the trails will be about 50% in kind of the you know, kind of the low to moderate difficulty rating, which I've developed a difficulty rating system based on spoon theory. The difficulty rating kind of takes that understanding and applies it to how difficult a trail may be for someone who is actually disabled. 
This trail rating system is brilliant. The spoon theory, coined by Christine Miserandino, is a disability metaphor used to communicate the reduced amount of mental and physical energy available for the daily life of someone with a disability or chronic illness. The spoons are a visual representation of how much energy a person has throughout a given day. Everything they do requires a certain amount of spoons. Say you start your day with 12 spoons, but you slept poorly and wake up in pain. You take away at least one spoon. If the pain and poor sleep is giving you brain fog, take away another spoon. If the brain fog is so bad that even making breakfast or taking a shower is too much, take away another spoon, etc. A person can run out of spoons before getting through a morning and only rest will replenish the spoons. People who use the spoon theory may refer to themselves as spoonies or say things like, I don't have the spoons or I don't have enough spoons to complete whatever activity they may have set out to do. And we'll include really detailed information on, you know, grades, slopes, trail surface, uh, full elevation detail and elevation profiles, information on, you know, all of the barriers that are on the trail, places to sit, things like that. And then the final, like 10% of the book will be trails that are at the upper end of the difficulty rating. And again, that's difficult for someone who is disabled. How do other trail guides get it wrong for disabled people? What does an average trail guide miss um, that you're looking for when you're looking at a trail guide? Yeah, so, you know, I've, I have, of course, read a ton of your typical trail guides, just trying to dig for information that I need to be able to decide if a trail is going to be accessible for me or not. And for the most part, they overlook almost all of the information that I really need. Um, you know, your average trail guide may include like total elevation change, but it doesn't tell you, you know, whether that's all one way or if it's up and down. Um, it doesn't give you the actual, you know, grade of any uh, specific elevation change. It doesn't give any detailed information on like obstacles and barriers in the trail because you know, for most disabled or non-disabled folks, you know, having like a slippery boardwalk and a bunch of loose rocks in a path or whatever just kind of makes the trail more adventurous. Whereas for me, that makes a trail dangerous. You know, having really detailed information on that is important. And then just kind of more generally, the trail guides just kind of assume that everyone who is on the trail is fully able-bodied and your quote-unquote typical uh, outdoors person and doesn't give any kind of context for the experience or the abilities of the person who is writing the guide. I figure out what I want to do and then I try to research the place as much as possible. I'm looking for what parking is like, what type of terrain I'm dealing with, whether or not I need to bring certain types of equipment. I'm looking for access to bathrooms, whether or not the bathroom is accessible. I'm looking at how far I have to drive. I look at a lot of things in terms of access.
I have dissociative identity disorder. I decide to go where to go based on my everyday or at the moment stability and my ability to be safe and present um, and aware of my surroundings. When there are less people around, we feel safer. Um, we need lots of time outside by ourselves uh, without people, if possible, to continue to be stable and function in our daily life and work with the public. In regards to how do I find trails, um, we love the app All Trails and it's easy to find new spots that are close by wherever we're at. Usually if I'm going to a park or something, I would first check and see what it's like. A lot of people think that just because you said park is accessible, but it's not always, especially for a disabled person. I have to check out the layout of the park. I have to know if my wheelchair will be able to handle the trails, the bathroom, stuff like that. I am very comfortable with my ability. So with biking, I am I'm usually biking like 20 to 50 miles, so 20 to 50 or 60 miles, um, but mainly on like not the steepest possible roads ever because I'm doing it with one leg. Physical access isn't a barrier for me, still I don't want to be on a remote trail if I have an emergency. And I can't go hiking when it's too hot because I'm an electrolyte disorder, or when it's too cold because I'll break out in hives. I don't have to worry about how strenuous a trail is though, my chronic pain disorder is helped by exercise and I'm generally, you know, feeling pretty good by the time I hit a summit. Research is a necessity no matter if you're able-bodied or disabled. I use trail maps, but there are consistent inconsistencies in wheelchair accessible trail ratings and that's if there's a rating at all. I also use Google Earth to scout trails. Until we have a better rating system in place, finding a trail as a person with a disability is going to continue to be extremely difficult. We both know words mean things. Language is so important and it evolves. I see a lot of people kind of tiptoe around the word disabled. I've totally done it myself, like by saying differently abled and things like that. And I've broken myself of that. But I even see people with disabilities do it too. And you know, kind of shy away from it in lieu of words that are like a little more inspirational, um, you know, like differently abled, like I said, but also like adaptive hiker, adaptive climber. Why is it important to use the word disabled? Yeah, for me, it's, it's really important to use the word disabled because if we don't name something for what it is, if we don't use the word, if we don't use the language, then it becomes much easier to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist or call it, you know, say it's something different. And then you don't have to acknowledge it or meet those needs or make any changes. So for me, using the word disabled is really empowering and it's saying, you know, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I need, and I deserve to have those needs met.
I definitely understand why within the disability community there's a lot of conversation around this and a lot of people don't like to use the word disabled because you know for a long time and still you know it's treated as something to be ashamed of you know as something you know being disabled is the worst thing you could possibly be yeah so i would encourage people who are reluctant to use the word disabled to consider that you know disability is considered a negative by by society but it doesn't make it true it doesn't mean that you are not valid that you're not valuable you are and if we can reclaim that and you know say that we are valuable even as disabled people then we can help shift that conversation and we can help change things yeah i mean a lot of the times when we use euphemisms or instead of literal language we're kind of just trying to make other people who aren't experiencing those issues more comfortable Mm -hmm. you know like you said there are people who feel like or treat you know disability like it's the worst thing that could possibly happen which is just wild because it's so funny how we assign things like that to people's worth instead of like whether or not somebody is a good kind person or like (laughs) things about people's bodies can can often come first over who a person is you know and and also of course like the things like, uh, you know, being disabled or being a fat person or a trans person, um, of course, totally influence who we are and like, uh, you know, things like that. But it's not, it's just so interesting to me that like how somebody perceives somebody's body is somehow worse than like what kind of person you are in the world. Yeah. Yeah. What are some things that able-bodied people say about people with disabilities that just like needs to be tossed right into the garbage? Like what kind of narratives and words uh, are totally misused, overused, et cetera? Yeah, there are uh, so many things that, you know, non-disabled people say or think about disability that is just so just so out there and so wrong um ableism is so pervasive like you you know you don't even notice it half the time because it's just kind of baked in (laughs) you know one of the things that uh really bothers me is you know assuming that because someone is disabled that you know they're not intelligent or that they're not capable or that they don't even want the things that, you know, everyone else wants because, you know, their life is so centered around being disabled. And, you know, that's not true. Of course, you know, disabled folks want, you know, many of the same things that non-disabled folks want. And, um, you know, there's, there's no reason to use someone's, you know, the state of their body as, you know, as a value judgment on, you know, their, uh, on their experience of the world or their desires and whether those desires are valid or not. One thing I hear people say that I'm tired of 
is, I'm sorry you can't come. I know that sounds silly, but instead of saying sorry all the time, find an activity that everyone can do, not just able-bodied people. Another thing is next time. Just be honest and say you don't want me around because for you to be saying next time all the time and there never is a next time just hurts even more. I'm happy to see you out here. I get it. I inspire you. But I wish you would inspire yourself. Words usually don't bother me. But you shouldn't patronize those who are apparently inspiring you. Uh, good to see you out here getting out there and doing it as if I'm supposed to just stay home and do nothing. It's kind of annoying. People with disabilities like to get outside and do things just like the next person. There are definitely specific phrases that I wish we would just get rid of the toxic positivity and wellness in general. You heard it touched on in a couple of our Unlikely Hikers comments, but I want to talk a little bit about inspiration porn, a term coined by disabled writer and comedian Stella Young. You may have seen comments like, the only disability is a bad attitude. Or, if they can do it, I've got no excuses. Maybe you've even said or thought things along those lines. Sometimes you'll see these quotes paired with somebody who has an amputated limb and they're using a prosthesis. Disability doesn't make someone exceptional. These narratives imply that people with disabilities don't do or want the same things as non-disabled people. And when they do something that non-disabled people do all of the time, it's treated as exceptional, like they triumphed against their disability. Inspiration porn objectifies disabled people and perpetuates the assumption that disabled people should be able to do anything, that anything can be done if one tries hard enough, which ignores what should be respected, our individual limitations and diversity of ability. I noticed that you said non-disabled people. Do you prefer that over able-bodied? Yeah, so there's there's kind of a nuance to the difference between the words able-bodied and non-disabled. So able-bodied means someone who is basically not physically disabled. Um, non-disabled encompasses means someone who is doesn't have any kind of disability. So you know, disability can be a physical disability, it can be a cognitive disability, a sensory disability, neurological disability. There are many types of disabilities um, that don't necessarily manifest as, you know, physically, a physically disabled. So there's, yeah, just kind of a nuanced difference between those terms. So really just kind of depends on who you're talking about. Thank you. I, it's so important to me to use the right language for things. And, and I also totally understand the, uh, the duality too, you know, there's like some people who feel some type of way about certain things and some people who don't. Like I've noticed that you have advocated for saying disabled person rather than person with disabilities. And, and, and truly I've heard it both ways so many different times. Would you explain just a little bit about that? Yeah, so I prefer identity first language over person first language. So identity first language is, you know, saying, you know, disabled person. 
person first language is person with disability. And, you know, first I, I want to acknowledge that whatever an individual prefers, that's totally fine with me. I'm not going to argue with you or try to change your mind about that. Um, for me, I feel like using identity first language, again, kind of goes back to that visibility piece. I am a disabled person. Disability is very central to my identity and my experience of the world. So I'm not able to separate that from my person. How can non-disabled people advocate for disabled people in the outdoor arena? Yeah, non-disabled people can advocate uh, for disabled folks in lots of ways. Um, you know, of course, there's making improvements uh, at, you know, inside of parks and on trails to make them more accessible. Uh, there's advocating for improved public transit, you know, because many disabled folks can't drive themselves. And, you know, all of these changes can benefit non-disabled people too. So building access into, into the outdoors and, you know, into the world in general um, actually benefits everyone. So it's really all in our best interest to do it. You know, if there's more public transit to the parks, then there are fewer cars clogging up the, you know, the trailhead. And um, if there's better access and more information, then everyone gets to be able to know what to expect when they're on the trail. And then, of course, there's, you know, addressing, you know, ableism within the outdoor community. And, you know, I know that, you know, if you're not a disabled person, that can be, of course, really hard to see at first if you're not, you know, kind of accustomed to noticing ableism. And, you know, but learning from other disabled folks about what ableism is and how to address it and then taking that information and having conversations with people that you know and addressing it when it comes up is really important. And of course, talking with disabled folks in your community and finding out what they need uh, is you know, really important too. One of the things that I get frustrated with in doing this work is that, you know, there, there gets to be a big focus on what can we do to improve the outdoors? What can we non-disabled people do to make things better? And that's, that is a really important conversation and one that I'm, you know, of course here for, but I don't get to speak too often to other disabled folks, you know, about what it means to, to want to enjoy nature and maybe not know how, or even feel like that is something that you can do. So, you know, I just want to want to say to everyone that whatever experiencing nature or the outdoors means to you, whether that is just, you know, sitting in a chair by the window or, you know, going and sitting in your local park or, you know, being out in the backcountry, whatever it is that's valid and finding small ways to enjoy nature can be really, really helpful and provide a lot of really important benefits uh, for folks who otherwise can feel pretty isolated from society. So you're not required to constantly be out there testing your limits and figuring out just how far you can go before you break. Like that's a really prevalent kind of perspective within the outdoor culture and um, that's, that's not what it means to be an outdoors person. I don't really know. I don't really think there's anything your general outdoor group could 
do that would make me feel comfortable joining. I think I'd feel more comfortable in a group of disabled people or other marginalized groups, but your average meetup or local store let outing, it's just like not going to happen for me. If you're going to organize a hike, pick a trail where disabled people, not just able-bodied people, can manage. Find a place that has open spaces that's even if there are hills and rocks, there's also a place that for someone like myself in a wheelchair can go. Reach out to the disabilities community, find out what they like to do, ask them how they can help in including them in certain activities. Um, I don't know, scout places and see if it's you know doable for wheelchair users or people who may not be able to walk long distances. I, I can't speak for everyone because everyone is different. If I could say anything to people who are wanting to be more inclusive of disabled people who want to hike, I would say, let those people set the pace. Even if you're going to rest every 100 meters or every five minutes or every 10 minutes, don't go ahead of the person who's struggling to keep up. Stay with them. Let them be the one who decides how fast and how far you go, and don't leave them feeling like they're alone. I think a great way for an outdoor group to be more inclusive is to be really intentional about accommodating stragglers. This might mean breaking up the group into different smaller groups of people with different goals for their hiking. You know, I know some people do like to hike fast. Um, but maybe the other group goes as slow as is necessary, and then they meet up at the lookout point, for example. What would you tell a disabled person who has maybe never thought about uh, the outdoors as a as something that's for them? What would you What would you tell them they might find in nature? Um, so for someone who's, hasn't felt like they can really be outdoors or hasn't felt like that's an experience that they can have, you know, I can say what I have found in the outdoors is feeling like I have a place that I can come home to, a place that I can feel connected with. And nature is a, is an amazing reminder that all kinds of beings exist in the world and they have their place and they have their role and you know they all you know may look different or experience things differently or have a different place you know within the ecological system but they're all just as valid and that's been a really powerful lesson for me beautiful i love that so much siren how can people support your book to support the guidebook and you know disabled hikers work in general, I have a Patreon, uh, which is kind of the easiest way for people to offer support. Um, it's a monthly subscription platform for those who don't know what it is. And that's at patreon.com uh, slash siren, S-Y-R-E-N. And then, you know, of course, just spreading, spreading the word about the book and about the work uh, is really important because to a large extent, Disabled folks are still left out of the conversation about diversity in the outdoors. And I feel like the more we talk about this, kind of the more momentum we'll get behind it and the more people will pay attention. 
you know, I just, I really encourage people to, to talk about it and share their experiences. Thank you, Siren Nagakiri, for talking with me and for creating Disabled Hikers. It is so needed. On Instagram, you can find Disabled Hikers at Disabled Hikers. And be sure to head to disabledhikers.com for tons of resources. You can also find all of this information in the show notes at jennybrusso.com. Thank you to Alyssa, Eugene Brookman, Avita Rush, Matthew Tilford, Regina, Olivia Bernard, Vasa Sujitra, and Callie Welch for sharing your experiences and perspectives with us. You can find their Instagram handles if they opted to share them in the show notes. And you, thank you for listening. Will you do me another favor? It takes many days to create each episode and this is largely unsponsored. Will you share this with your social networks? or maybe write us a good review. If you'd like to support Unlikely Hikers, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Jenny And while you're there, support disabled hikers too. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, head to our website. Until next time, I hope you'll be thinking about how to better show up for people with disabilities in general and in the outdoors. We've given you a lot to work with and hello, Google is free. Goodbye.